and welcome to Series 2, Episode 2 of the Sophos Naked Security Podcast. I'm Anna Brady and I'm here with Sophos experts Paul Ducklin. Hello folks. Matt Boddy. Hello all. And Mark Stockley. Hi. Hello everyone. Coming up on today's show, Mark talks about leaky browser add-ons, Duck talks about Evil Gnome and Matt talks about Blue Keep. Uh, what have you been up to this week guys? I wore a kilt on the weekend. Ooh. We didn't need to know that, but now we do. Yeah. Some of us have seen the picture. <laughs> yeah. I think it's very important to establish whether you did this in public or private, Matt. This was for a wedding. So my friend is part Scottish uh-huh. and uh, I was one of the groomsmen. So I wore a kilt at the wedding. Was there any conversation beforehand amongst the males in the group about what it, the etiquette uh, was? Yeah. It's the only thing that could be discussed. <laughs> <laughs> And was there then any sort of procedure for making sure that people had complied one way or the other with whatever that group had agreed? We've there all seen indeed. the photos. <laughs> Pictures are online. Hopefully Please not. don't search for them. Well, I don't, I don't know how we're going to follow that. Mark? <laughs> well, I'm going to talk about Twitter. Um, have you so been tweeting again? I have, I have. So on Friday, it was Sysadmin Day, which is the annual celebration of... Uh, well, so the annual opportunity to appreciate your systems administrators who... If you forgot, you can appreciate them all the rest of the year as well, I'm told. <laughs> but we're going just, to... We'll just start in case. With, we'll start with one day and we'll yeah. see how that goes. Yep. And we like to make a bit of a fuss on Sysadmin Day. And this year we were on uh, Twitter asking you about your T-shirts. So Sysadmins and geeks in general are well known for their love of a witty T-shirt science science fiction-y, funny, um, all that kind of thing. So we asked you to tweet us your T-shirts of IT, and we also ran a poll asking who wears the best T-shirts. Is it the Windows admins or the Linux admins? And it turned out it was Anna, our uh, podcast re- host. Yeah, I did receive quite a lot of likes on mine. That's funny. You've Just hardly mentioned that. that. I know. Did you? So you had the most likes on your Yeah, I did. It turns oh, out I did. Okay. I don't know if it was for me or my T-shirt, but... <laughs> <laughs> But you're willing to speculate. <laughs> yeah. There's okay. no well, it's called like T-shirts of IT, so I think it's pretty clear to everyone that they were. it was all about the T-shirts. It was all about yeah. the T-shirts. So congratulations. Thanks. Uh, so Frank Barton uh, got a lot of love after he tweeted a T-shirt that his wife made for him that simply said, sysadmins, because even developers need heroes. Oh, that was a good one. But my favourite response uh, came from Epic Null who responded to the poll about who wears the best T-shirts, Windows or Linux admins, by saying, after watching what my poor Windows sysadmin co-workers have to go through, I vote we just give them the win, which I thought was very yeah. charitable. Did you see somebody also posted a picture of someone wearing a very 1980s Microsoft distorted window shirt, which really, really looks super, super <laughs> dated and super weirdly coloured, and said, I just watch my Windows colleagues with envy. I thought that was quite amusing, particularly <laughs> since you could only see the back of the guy because sort of riding off into the Windows 95 sunset. And that was, that was quite a prophetic tweet because obviously the Windows... <laughs> Guys, sadly, sorry, Windows guys, you didn't win the poll. Aww. It's official. We can declare now that Linux admins have the best T-shirts. Um, can people still tweet them to us? Absolutely, yeah. We want to see those T-shirts of IT. Just because it's not sysadmin day, that doesn't mean that sysadmins are no longer funny. Um, so send us your T-shirts of IT. And we're still waiting to see you in one, aren't we? Well, I tweeted my old, my old school naked security T-shirt, oh. which got a lot of love. It's not as t-shirt. much as Frank Barton, but... And who yeah. designed that T-shirt, Mark? That was me, actually. 
Finally, as elsewhere on Twitter, I think we should mention this as well. So friend of the show, Michael Curtis, has stumped our own Matt Body with a gif of a computer challenging him to a game of tic-tac-toe. Have you figured out what it is yet, Matt? Well, it's tic-tac-toe, that was clear, but I just don't know what, what on earth is that programme. I'm assuming it's a response to last week's podcast when you started mentioning The Hobbit in <laughs> old computer form, which I can't relate to because it was probably on some Amstrad. Oh, it's before his time. <laughs> it was a BBC Micro. A BBC Micro, there we go. Doc, what have you been up to this week? Well, I have been trying the new parallel mode of curl which lets you download multiple URLs at the same time. So if you've got a list of stuff you want to harvest for research purposes, it's a very convenient way of getting the curl HTTP client to do it for you without having to write a script that runs lots of curls at the same time. Am I the only one that found harvesting for research purposes mildly threatening? <laughs> Are you going to talk to us about Evil Gnome this week, Doug? Evil Gnome, yes. Uh, it It's a... Uh, malware that, let's be honest, you're probably not going to see or get uh, for two reasons. One, it's rare. And secondly, it targets a very unusual set of victims or a very low percentage of the world's laptop or desktop computer users, namely those who have Linux, but for desktop purposes. Now, I know that I was a happy, before I got my Mac, I was a happy Linux desktop for work user for very many years. Um, so I know there are plenty of you around, but in percentage terms, you're a very small part of the population. Usually, you'd back the kind of person who's made the decision to set up their own operating system and customise it. They're probably going to be a bit better at security. But nevertheless, these crooks figured, well, we might as well try. We'll get this, write this malware and see where it goes. And the big trick about it is it uses a technique that is surprisingly common these days for Linux software apps that you download. It uses a tool called MakeSelf, which is actually used by a lot of professional programs. For example, Oracle VirtualBox uses it. It takes your executable and your whole distribution, like a, like a zip file or an archive like you might have on Windows or an MSI, and it basically sticks a tiny little shell script in front, just a few hundred lines. So what you do is you download something that kind of looks like a text file and you just run it and it magically expands this whole directory tree and then runs some randomized, customized script inside it. So it's a great way for distributing in one file a complicated Linux bundle so you don't have to worry about unpacking it, putting it in the right place, doing a configure utility, doing make, doing make install and all that stuff. You just run this one file you downloaded and that's how they decided to pack it. It. But if it doesn't do any of that make and configure stuff, how does it randomly break? Like where, I... Well, it random. This one will randomly break if you have thirty-two bit Linux, because it's actually it assumes these days that everyone has sixty-four bit Linux. But basically, the thing is that the executable that ultimately gets installed is written in a way that makes it. Uh, very, very portable across lots of Linuxes. So it doesn't do, although it's called Evil Gnome, and that's named after Gnome, the well, the, yeah, the, yeah. the GTK-based desktop windowing manager, that's just the way it hides. So it hides itself in directories that have Gnome in the name under a, a directory in your home folder called .cache, which is there in any case, just a temporary directory for programs to use. So the point is there isn't actually much to go wrong. Yeah. And by wrapping it in this make self script, make self by design 
is specially coded so it works with C shell, Z shell, bash, ash, dash, lash, and all of that other stuff. Yeah. So it's designed to work in just about any environment. So that it is that I, I think the, the the jargon term you'll hear. I'm not sure whether I quite like this term, but it's pretty commonly heard. Sort of living off the land. In other words, what you try and do is you do things that rely on stuff that people expect to see there anyway and that are maybe accustomed to do. In the same way that fishers are learning not to send dramatic emails that are completely different from what your bank sends you. Yeah. They're actually taking emails that your company sent, yeah. copying them and just pasting them with a new link in. And this is that whole idea. It kind of, it lives in a folder that's supposed to be there. It's got a dot in front of the name dot cache, so it's hidden by default on Unix. It kind of lives, it gives its name like it's probably part of GNOME or the GTK distribution. Yeah. It's the kind of thing that the average user, even a well informed user, you kind of probably just wouldn't notice because if you were to dig into the directories where it lives, you'd probably expect to find loads of tab yeah, that yeah. you didn't quite understand anyway. I mean, if you do if you do ls minus la on your home directory these days, I mean, you're, you're, if you use a computer a lot, you're going to see an awful lot of dot files with caches and things like that. It's, it seems like quite a a fruitful area for hiding. Yes, in the same way that when people, if people, you know, on Windows, if you open a terminal prompt and list the Windows System 32 directory, it just goes on and on and on and on and on. The old days of DOS, when you memorised the size in bytes of command.com so you could see if anyone touched it, are long gone. There are just all these files that you might expect to be there. And the thing with the .cache files, you know, they're kind of, they're meant to be here today, gone tomorrow. So it's meant to be this ever-changing list of files that don't matter if they're stored. In other words, they don't, they're not supposed to contain secrets mm. because they're just written to disk and they're just there to speed things up for later. And unfortunately, what this thing does um, is it includes a bunch of modules. There's one called Sound, which can actually... Uh, leech your audio feed. There's a module called, a part, uh, fun some functions called shooter image, and those will take screenshots. Uh, there, there is some, there's a, a component that deals with looking through files as they're created. And there's even a keylogger, although according to the company that did the analysis of this, that keylogger component, it's kind of a work in progress. They, they let it out, but they haven't quite finished it yet, so it's never called. <laughs> so what you're saying is this yeah. is like professional software. Well, it, yeah. And there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a component called ping, which like many bots or zombie malware items, this is the thing that calls home to see whether the mothership that has the instructions on what to do next is alive. And it's normally you think ping is just to use to see if another computer's alive. Yeah. This actually, the functionality of this is that it makes this into a generic zombie or bot. In other words, it calls home and the crooks can send it instructions, including remove thyself and replace thyself with this new malware. Yeah. So it basically... Once you've got this thing, it's kind of a remote code execution platform yeah. that the crooks can control at and any does, time. Does any of this require root? Well, that's the thing. We, we had some comments, people commenting on the article saying, you know, you guys always overplay Linux malware, particularly for a desktop environment, because on Windows, everyone's always admin. And on Linux, no distro will let you be admin. It won't let you create, you, you can have a root account, but it won't let, it kind of urges you to use a non-root account. Yeah. Well, there are two problems with assuming that not being root keeps you safe. Firstly, is that if you're logged in as yourself 
and you run the malware, the malware gets your privileges. Mm. And you can listen to your own audio, unsurprisingly. You can take screenshots of your own screen. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to use a screen capture utility. You know, you can log your own keystrokes. In fact, there are there are special commands on Unix that are very handy for keeping a recorded script of a, of a log, which is very useful for things like change control. Yep. So the problem is you, you don't need to be root to do an awful lot of damage on a desktop computer because generally the files in your home folder, those are the gold dust for the crooks. They can do much more damage if they can mess with your system files. They can be more persistent. The malware can last longer. It can mount attacks on other computers on your network. It might be able to sniff out things like passwords and other secrets. Yeah. But if you think a lot of Windows ransomware doesn't even bother trying to encrypt files, scramble files outside your home folder. It mm. doesn't care about your Windows folder. It doesn't care about the system. It wants to leave your system running so that you can be sure to boot up, run your browser and download Tor and figure out how to pay the ransom. And that's the problem that malware can do an awful lot of damage to you, to your reputation, to your data, to your customer's data, just with your own account. So that's a good point. This is a botnet, but it's not ransomware, is it, that we've seen so far? The commands that are being sent back to it, do we know what it's being instructed to no, do the, yet? The, I think this thing is, it's, it's more of a curiosity. So I don't think anyone's going to see it. We do have on Naked Security, we've got some instructions on what to look for, which will tell you if it's there. Because one of the other things that it does, which is very, very simple, but kind of surprisingly clever, if one can use that word, is it actually launches itself by setting an entry in your cron tab, the, 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 the thing that runs programs in the background at regular times, uh, so that every minute it checks to see whether it's still running. And if it isn't, it just reinitializes itself. But the problem with any bot or zombie that includes like this thing's ping function, almost every bot we've seen ever in the win in the history of Windows, Linux or any operating system, even if it's even if it's specially tailored, for example, that it's designed to do screenshots, the one thing the crooks almost always leave in as well is the or and or download something else later. Yeah. So that's the problem. They can always change their mind and get rid of this malware and give you something completely different. Modular malware. Yes, and we've also seen in many cases where we investigate things like ransomware attacks on Windows is that when you actually go digging and the person admits, look, I, you know, I, I didn't take the right precautions, I've got myself into trouble, can you just come in and just help us look around and figure out what happened so we can make sure it doesn't happen again? When you go digging, it's very, very common to find other malware on the system that's been there for a lot longer. And it's an open question. Is it just that because your system is easily compromised that two different lots of crooks got in and the ransomware guys put a spanner in the works of, the say, the keylogger guys? Or is it a question that the keylogger guys were there for three months, they figured they've got every password they're going to get, so the final thing they do is, OK, now let's take three grand off you as well by scrambling your files. Can I interrupt this podcast with a confession? Hey, it's your producer Alice here, and I managed to lose Anna's audio stream in the recording from this point onwards. Um, I think you still get the gist of the episode, so please forgive me for doing that. <laughs> it's quite funny because if you guys have seen our video, we got an animator to come in and basically make fun of the fact that the sound used to be poor and now it's amazing. And then on episode three, I managed to go right back to how the sound used to be, but only for one audio stream. So yeah, please bear with us for the rest of the episode. You might you might have to just listen in a bit closely for Anna, um, but everyone else should be fine. 
Thanks. Matt, you've somehow managed to uh, sandwich in an RDP topic this week, haven't you? Good work. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, off the back of our RDP research proving that there is an escalating amount of brute force attacks on RDP servers on a daily basis, it, it was time to talk about RDP once again. RDP. Forward slash RDP. <laughs> So um, so it's only been two weeks or so since we published that research. And, uh, and Blue Keep is once again raising its head. So, uh, so there, it's believed that there's actually an imminent RDP worm that's going to hit us very soon. Because proof of code exploits have been developed but kept secret up until now. Basically. So Blue Keep is a already patched by Microsoft bug in your RDP server that means that somebody can connect to it. They don't need a username. They don't need a password. They basically can just connect to your RDP server. And if they give the right incantation, poke the knitting needle in the right place, That's they right. can get your server to run whatever they want. Yeah, so we've now... As root. Yeah, as root. So we've now found out that it was actually a use-after-free exploit that uh, or a use after free vulnerability in the RDP server in RDP basically. So, so that's why you mess around with memory in such a way that when the program crashes, instead of just terminating normally, it jumps into the code that you poked into memory. So you basically get to run something without an okay are you sure? Do you wish to continue? Yeah, exactly. So it tries to use memory after the system is supposed to have discharged that memory. So what's the latest then this week? The latest this week is that two people or two organisations, well, one person and an organisation have revealed that they have got proof of concept code for this. And unlike the previously secret co proof of concept code, like the which of Sophos Labs produced, where they said, we can exploit this, here's a video of us doing it, but we didn't release the code to anybody. Canvas, first of all, ha which is a um, an automated exploit system, um, sorry, Immunity Inc. is the organisation, but Canvas is the uh, is the sort of penetration testing tool. Has have released a module within Canvas that allows the penetration testers that use their platform to automatically exploit Windows systems with RDP enabled. So this is actually quite a good thing in a way that Canvas has released this because it is designed for penetration testers. It's a subscription-based platform, if I can get my words out, meaning that you have to pay tens of thousands of dollars in order to get access to this. So and penetration it, testers and rich crooks. And, well, and rich crooks, <laughs> but I'm assuming that that subscription-based platform... Or big crooks with <laughs> friends in low places. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm making a bit of an assumption that, 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 that um, immunity have some sort of accountability to the people that are using their platform, meaning that, that actually if somebody does use it for bad, you could probably tie back to the person that has used it for bad or the organisation that's used it for bad. That's all... A that's all... Well, kind of theoretical, not that I approve of yeah. like full disclosure of, of, of you know, making it far too easy for people to download and use code for criminal purposes. But my understanding is that the Sophos Labs offensive research guys, that their particular reason in figuring out whether a proof of concept was possible was to see if they could do it based only on the patch. Because obviously, once a patch comes out, you can see what it was like before, what's changed now. You can make inferences about the flaw. And although Microsoft do try to disguise this, it is possible. That's why people often joke that, well, patch Tuesday, exploit Wednesday. 
it's not that easy anymore. But my understanding is they were able to do that. So they didn't need any secret knowledge. They didn't need any insider stuff. It was basically that it is possible to go from freely publicly available information to produce a, a workable exploit. But now it looks like there's kind of one loosely speaking in circulation yeah. yeah so well well canvas isn't really in circulation canvas canvas hasn't made it in circulation as such that just enables some of the good guys the uh, the penetration testers that are kind of that they're, they're testing your networks and if you're getting people in that have access to this tool set they've got access to be able to launch this exploit on your system and see whether you're vulnerable to it so they can they can use this um, to, to help you see where your faults lie and what somebody could do with but that But that's exploit. still a step, as I understand it. That's a step beyond just, are you vulnerable? It's actually a, yes, you're vulnerable and we'll prove it by actually doing the exploit. That's so true. So a pen test is doing it not to prove whether you're vulnerable, it's to actually show, yes, I got inside and here's the proof. That's true. But that's the whole point of a penetration yeah, test. Indeed. Quite a lot of no. people do just purchase a vulnerability assessment um, when they're looking for a pen test. But, but if people go to that extra extreme and they say, right, we don't just want to see if we're vulnerable to certain exploits on the face of things, we want to see what happens if somebody exploits our network. We want to see yeah. what to what extent can somebody just completely pwn our organisation. Because a vulnerability scanner sort of tells you the theory, yeah. whereas the idea of a penetration test is it proves the practice. Precisely, yeah, because sometimes theory and practice don't, don't align. So you said there were two things that happened. That's right. So... so Thing number two is that a researcher has posted a detailed analysis of the vulnerability. And that detailed analysis includes a proof of concept Python code, um, which uh, which basically shows you that, that anybody can actually release this vulnerability or, or ex exploit this vulnerability. Yeah. So this is slightly, well, this is a lot more dangerous than the canvas, um, this, this being included as a, a module within canvas. This is out in the wild, everybody can have access to this proof of concept Python code, meaning that anybody can release this exploit yeah. to devices. Now, there's, there's, they've kind of justified the research has justified the fact that they've released this, um, this proof of concept code in saying that actually, um, it's, it's. Where's my quote? I've written it down somewhere. Uh, they have said that it's largely available in the Chinese hacker community. So in the Chinese hacker community, there's quite a few PowerPoint slides going around saying, these are the, the, these are the commands that you need in order to exploit this code. Meaning that they've kind of justified that actually it's already out there. They've just put it together in a handy um, made <laughs> repository, made it easy for people to use. But they've also, they've not included any documentation on where you'd put your payload if you are able to exploit this vulnerability. And they don't, um, they don't, uh, so it doesn't include an executable payload either. So it just is proof of concept of the vulnerability being exploited. And it's not worming around a network after it's being exploited, for example. But we're, so. we're getting there by degrees, aren't we? This yeah. is a bit yeah. like watching a car crash in slow motion. Everybody's so you have, you have the patch comes out and then you've got a bunch of people going, well, we know how to exploit it, but we're not going to tell you. Yeah. But, you know, here's some proof or here's a video. And then you've got, now we've got actual code coming out and it's not just kind of nods and winks that we know how to do this. And we can all see this coming. Everybody's been predicting this for months. And it's... It, I'm beginning to wonder why it hasn't happened yet. And I guess it must be pretty difficult to exploit this successfully. 
in the way that everybody's worried about, which obviously doesn't mean that it's impossible. But there's also the possibility that it is already being exploited, but it's being exploited in a way, you know, much more quietly. Because I think what everybody had in mind in the beginning was that Microsoft said this is a wormable vulnerability. So this could create a kind of flash flood, like a slammer worm that goes around the globe in a few minutes or a few hours. Um, but just because it can be used for that, that doesn't mean it is going to be used for that. Yeah, so so the fact that they've said it's a wormable vulnerability, um, BitSight on the 2nd of July 2019 said that they can see 805,665 computers that are vulnerable to this. That 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 means they are they could be entrance points to for this wormable vulnerability. So, yeah, that's, so that's that's why they're relevant. They that's could be RDP an entry. servers on the internet. That's RDP servers yeah. on the internet. That could be one. You know that could be eight hundred over eight hundred thousand servers, which are doors into eight hundred thousand organizations. Yeah. Meaning, you know, this is this could be as big or bigger than WannaCry, for instance. Well, we've, and we've even seen cases in the past where somebody figures out a an exploitable vulnerability that actually turns out that it, it doesn't just apply, say, to servers, but a lot of desktop computers also have the, the relevant server-type code running, like yeah. the SQL Slammer. So you'll see vulnerabilities where they are really hard to exploit, and the exploit is quite unreliable, and somebody decides to have a global go anyway... And then you get just as much fallout from the fact that half the computers are spreading this thing and half of them are crashing. Yeah. And so half the people are contributing to the problem that the other half are suffering. So, I mean, it, it is a, the fact that now kind of people can go out and get this. Yeah, it is. That's like if, if you were ignoring the road signs before saying big flood ahead, um, maybe it's time to patch now. <laughs> so that, that 800,000... So that's down from about a million, uh, I think a month ago or yeah. six weeks ago. Yeah, which is that's a pretty slow rate. And you've got to think, well, those that two hundred, those two hundred thousand were the most willing to patch. Yeah, like they, that's the low hanging fruit. That's gone now. So it's um, it's going to be a lot of targets, even if it takes a year for this thing to to fire, isn't it? I think that's what we call in the industry a race condition. <laughs> is it? <laughs> You're looking at me like it's not now. <laughs> just thinking, yeah, I, I think the problem is that if you don't patch, then it's likely that a crook who's determined to get you can jump in and use it as an entry point to your network. But somebody who just wants to cause mayhem, you may not have patched, but your lack of patching could affect me. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so for instance, if I'm part of a larger organisation and I have not patched, or I'm I'm a part, I'm partnering with an organisation, I've not patched my RDP server, but I've got a VPN across to this other organisation. The fact that I've not patched my RDP server means that I could start this worm spreading throughout any other organisation, which is VPNing back to my infrastructure. infrastructure. And I, if you're infected, I don't want your packets hammering away at me, even if I am patched. Thank you very much. Yeah. Exactly. Um, do you want to use this um, and Mark to do a, do a proper RDP research? Oh, did you, did you do some RDP research, Mark? In fact, you and me, Mark, did some RDP research and we found that there were 3,600 attacks on our servers in day one, 37,000 attacks on our servers in day two, 55,000 unauthorised unsolicited login attempts on our servers in day three. Which so these, came are, these are from brute force login attempts. This is nothing to do with BlueKeep now. This is this is the stuff that's force. happening to your RDP server now while you're sweating about BlueKeep and when it's going to hit. Yeah. 
And on day one, that came from 88 IP addresses. On day two, that came from 260 IP addresses. On day three, it came through 338 IP addresses. Well, that sounds like fascinating research, Matt. Where can I read more about this? Sophos.com forward slash RDP. And it there's a podcast. So the moral there is, if you build it, the crooks will come. Exactly. So watch out. And on Shodan, there are over 3 million servers with RDP revealed. 800,000 of which haven't applied the patch. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks for coming. <laughs> Mark, you're going to talk about leaky browser extensions. I am going to talk about leaky, leaky browser extensions. So I'm going to start with a question. So, Anna, do you use any browser extensions? I do. And have you ever re- uh, have you ever read the privacy policy for your browser extensions? No, I, I wasn't. I was genuinely curious. You strike me as the kind of person that would read the privacy policy. Actually, Duck, you're probably the person in the room most likely to have read a privacy policy. I assume you use browser extensions. Have you ever read the privacy policy for your browser extensions? I just used. To be honest, the ones that are built into Tor, like uh, HTTP, uh, well, there's HTTP nowhere and HTTPS everywhere, isn't there? So, um, so no, I, I've I've kind of read the Tor blurb and decided, yeah, I trust these guys. I hope it'll be good. Okay, so so yes, I have legally, but <laughs> I, I assume they're going to be watching what I'm doing, and I assume they're going to do something with that data, and I kind of have to assume they're not going to screw up. I'm going to take that as a no. So this is important. So we need to bear in mind that even Duck doesn't read privacy uh, policies. So this is a story uh, brought to us by a researcher by the name of Sam Jadali, and he has uncovered some foul play in the world of browser extensions, which I know will oh, shock you. Oh, foul play. This is part of an interesting, interesting kind of movement that we've seen in the last few years where this happens in lots of areas of software where the crooks realise that the game's up, uh, it's becoming extremely hard to find vulnerabilities in browser themse- browsers themselves. The browser vendors are very, very hot on privacy and security. They spend an <laughs> awful lot of money on it. Yeah. And if you if you look at, you know, people go to these pwn-to-own competitions, they get paid absolute fortunes for finding uh, bugs in browsers. It's very, very difficult. It's much easier to find uh, bugs or, you know, to do nasty things with browser extensions because people treat them like they're part of the browser. Um, but actually they're made by a completely different bunch of people who may be operating to very different set of standards. So, uh, Sam, Mark, did- these ones were actually in Chrome and Firefox stores, weren't they? So they did have a kind of implicit recommendation slash imprimatur. Yeah, so this... So they sort of were part of your browser from a from a kind of cultural point of view almost. Well, I, th- I think that's the problem. I think people view them, it's a bit like Google Play, you know, yeah. the, the, the app stores in general are probably a good thing. Um, I know that some people think that they curtail your freedom, but in terms of stopping malware, they're a good thing. And in terms of giving browser vendors power to do things like withdraw extensions very, very quickly, they're a, they're a good thing, but they're not a catch-all and they're not a guarantee necessarily of anything. So back to uh, Sam Jadali. Um, and his foul play, or the yeah, foul play that he's discovered. So he has discovered what he's calling catastrophic data leak, uh, which he's titled data spy. That's eyes. data spy with two eyes because PII. Get it? Oh, Personally identifiable oh, information. I thought it was spy eye. P 
P-I-I. No, P-I-I. Good. He obviously had some trouble after having thought of that cleverness because I noticed in the paper he has, in brackets, <laughs> pronounced data spy <laughs> written out with a Y. <laughs> I think that's a very Unixy thing to do. I've come up with an unpronounceable name. Here is how you pronounce it. Here are my instructions. Oh, anyway, his, un- his investigation has uncovered Sophos. eight browser extensions uh, that run on Chrome and Firefox, which are being used for gathering web analytics, which is basically your browsing behavior. The analytics are sent to an online service that he's calling Company X, and Company X then sells that data to members of its service uh, in near real time. So he reckons there's about an hour's delay between the information being recorded and it being available to the members on this service. And it's important to note here, and this is why I asked my question at the beginning, that the eight extensions, uh, according to Jadali, state in the terms of service or their privacy policies that they might collect data that is personally identifiable or non-personally identifiable. So there is an element to this. So there's no subterfuge or there's no legal subterfuge in the actual uh, capturing of the web analytics data. The extensions in question are uh, HoverZoom, SpeakIt, SuperZoom, SaveFrom.net Helper, FairShareUnlock, Panel Measurement, branded surveys, panel community surveys. And some of these are very popular and some of them aren't very popular at all. Duck, you noticed one that was... Yes, he had one number of... In- some of the installs were 1.4 million, which is a lot. One of them had one user, which we have to assume was him <laughs> trying it out. But the point is, it doesn't matter how many users it's got now, it does have that imprimatur of the of the of the browser maker because it's come from their official repository. Yeah. And so Mark can I ask you when when they collect data my assumption is well they they they're only they're not going to that you can have too much of a good thing they're probably just looking at URLs which do tell a lot about you but my understanding in this case they reserve the right basically to dig into what you're browsing to look at keywords so if you open a document online they might actually get to read what's inside it even if it's a so- personal email. Is that right? No. What, what what's happening is the there's a kind of secondary effect. Um, so what the browser extensions collect are URLs, page titles, and referrers, and this is pretty plain vanilla web analytics stuff. It's right. it's pretty basic actually. So they're not digging into the document itself. No. Okay. So when you when I so when I read this, so I do a lot with web analytics, and when I read that, you know, URLs, page titles, and referrers, I think, well, actually, that that doesn't sound like very much. So what's the problem here? And the problem is that URLs, although they are the address of the page you want, they don't just they don't only contain information about the page. They can contain parameters, uh, and those parameters can leak information. But uh, there's also another problem uh, about where these URLs turn up. So. As I said before, the company the the data is collected by company X, and then uh, if you sign up for their service and you become a member, what you do is you filter that data by your own domain name. So you say, well, I'm interested in my website, example.org. I want to see data about example.org. And then you have that data piped into your Google Analytics, which is your own web, web analytics that tells you about your website. Yeah. So people are in, they're, they're kind of enriching their existing web analytics with data pulled from these browser extensions. And the interesting thing about Google Analytics, if you use it, is that it will show you the URLs that people have been visiting. So we've got one data leak where people can see 
personally identifiable information in the URLs themselves, but we've got another data leak potentially as well in that there are lots and lots of things online that are actually protected by magic URLs. So, for example, you can log into Google Docs and if you want to share a document with someone and they don't have a Google account, you can create a unique URL that uh, is near impossible to guess. So it's effectively the URL is acts like a password. It's this, this incredibly long random string of characters. So if I give you that URL, then I can be reasonably sure that only you and I can see that document because no one's going to guess that URL. But obviously, if you're looking at it in your browser and your browser extension without you realising is sucking up that URL, sending it off to company X, and company X is injecting it into goodness knows whose analytics, well, now there's a clickable link in the analytics that whoever's looking at that analytics can click on and they can go and read the document too. And presumably the expectation is that most people who use analytics will want to search for keywords like interested in buying sunglasses, but there's nothing to stop a crook being interested in URLs that happen to have the word um, attorney private letter in them and actually use the search for analytics on things that are almost certain to be private and were never supposed to be revealed. Yeah. And I, I think the key thing for me is exactly that. It's, it's about the... I don't think it's particular... I know that, that threat modelling is, is a very kind of in vogue thing, but I don't think it's that fruitful to look at the specific ways that things might be exploited, I think it's much more important to look at the actual data and how did people intend yeah. this data to be used. Yes. So let's say that you've put you know, your tax return online on Google Docs or OneDrive and you're protecting it with a magic URL. Your intention is that you get to choose who sees that URL. You shouldn't have to predict, well, what if somebody gets it? What might they do with it? Am I, you know, that's... We have to start from the point of view of, you know, well, what, what is the intention here? So yes. I just want to say, so these magic URLs, it's not just Google Docs, it's not just OneDrive. So they're used by services like Zoom and Skype. Uh, iCloud use them, QuickBooks use them apparently, 23andMe, which is the um, uh, genetic service, uh, Nest security cameras and Google Docs and OneDrive as well. So meetings are meetings are a huge risk, aren't yep. they? Because you get the magic code for the meeting, you join it, you give yourself a name like Jimbo, and then you join the meeting and nobody notices. You've got audio and video. Okay, so that's the problem with magic URLs. But as I said previously, there is also a problem with PII in URLs directly. And when I yes. read that, I thought that reminded me of an old article I wrote about uh, Apache server status. And um, that was about data leaking in URLs as well. And I was I was kind of sceptical thinking, well, how serious is this really? People don't put passwords in URLs anymore. Um, and actually, uh, Jadali's done a fantastic job with the report that he's written. It's really good. And he's very, very thoroughly enumerated where he's saying there's a problem. He's actually gone through and he said, specifically on this website, this kind of PII is leaked in the URL. On this other website, this kind of PII is leaked in the URL. So for example... Um, he looked at one of the popular kind of ride sharing slash taxi services that you will have heard of. Um, and that lists pick up and drop off coordinates in URLs. Oh, so, like GPS? Yes. Like question mark, yeah. nat equals number. Oh, yeah. dear. Um, equally, he found that the browser extensions can capture things like uh, Facebook Messenger attachments. So if you're sending photos to oh. somebody... <laughs> I'll see where you went there. <laughs> <laughs> 
never done that. Um, yeah, if you're sending uh, photos to people over Facebook, Facebook Messenger and you're using one of these browser extensions, you know, the URL for that image, um, which will be on some CDN somewhere, can pop up in uh, someone's analytics. And it, and that URL then is effectively is the image because if another person visits it, yep. they actually get the image, not yep. the URL. So all in all, uh, the data that he lists in his report as being at risk includes uh, your personal interests, tax returns, GPS location, travel itineraries, gender, genealogy, usernames, passwords, credit card information, genetic profiles, company memos, employee tasks, API keys, proprietary source code, LAN environment data, firewall access codes, proprietary secrets, operational material, and zero-day vulnerabilities. Now, my reading of that is that's just the stuff where he figured out how you could actually get that information if you visited particular yes. websites. That's not an exhaustive list of all the possible types of information yeah. that could be leaked in when this I way. When I saw that list, I thought that's a synonym for the word yeah. anything and everything. Yeah. Sorry, that was three words, but never mind. So once this data is out there, can people get it back? I suppose you could go around making judicious GDPR requests, um, but I, I think... Probably in reality, no. This is this is more a question of, you know, how do you stop the damage? So, um, interestingly, uh, he mentions in the report that he actually reported one of the extensions. I, I assume, I hope he's reported all of them, but he mentions a specific situation where he reported one of the extensions to one of the browser vendors and they remotely disabled it um, right. for everyone that was using it. And by his reckoning, that didn't actually stop the data capture. So he was continuing to record, presumably he was wire-sharking or something, continuing to record the data being sent back to the mothership. So what you need to do is actually remove the extension, to be absolutely sure, is remove those extensions. Um, you can do that in Chrome. Uh, if you manually, manually enter the URL chrome colon slash slash extensions in Firefox, if you, manly, if you manually enter the URL about colon add-ons, A-D-D-O-N-S, uh, that will show you a list of your extensions and then you will have the option to disable or remove. Remind us what the extensions are. Uh, oh, sorry, I see what you mean. I thought you wanted a description of what an extension was. <laughs> no, listen How am I going to explain it? Yeah. Okay, the extensions are uh, HoverZoom, SpeakIt, SuperZoom, SaveFrom.net Helper, Fair share unlock, panel measurement, branded surveys, panel community surveys. And you can, if you didn't catch all that, you can obviously go and read the Naked Security article. And the Naked Security article links through to Jadali's uh, full research, which is, I, and I suggest that both of them are well worth a read. Um, and I think more generally, whenever I read something like this, I think it's great that this guy has found these extensions and he's found this method. It would be impossible... I think, for one researcher to have oversight over all of the extensions in all of the app stores. So I think we have to take this as a warning shot. Yes, uh, particularly since extensions tend to update themselves too. Yes. So what, hap what you've got tomorrow might be worse than what you've got today rather than better. So we had a couple of questions on Instagram. Um, one was, what tools would you recommend for a cybersecurity newbie? Assuming you have permission or it's your own network, a great place to start for me are tools like Wireshark, which lets you learn about network traffic, 
Nmap, which lets you learn how to find out what's on the network. And if you want to go for a scripting language or programming language to learn, uh, you can do no worse than start with Python because there are loads of tools that you can get that can help you with network analytics. Metasploit is a good, pretty good one for understanding how exploits work. Well, to understand how to exploit a vulnerability. Uh, uh, I would say just go and find the developer tools on your browsers and uh, go and have a look and, and see what you're... It's a lot easier to understand what's going on than looking at something like Wireshark, which gives you everything in the kitchen sink. Okay. So if you're looking for a, a, a an on-ramp, your browser developer tools. That's a good point because you get you can get an awful lot of information there, can't you? Like yep. exactly what was in the HTTP request, what JavaScript was loaded, what variables are set, all for free. Talking of Wireshark, someone's asked, what's one way of knowing when someone is using Wireshark on my network? <laughs> Assume that they are <laughs> because somebody is. Application control in software endpoint. So do you want to just explain what that is? Or XT file. Uh, application control in the Sophos endpoint allows you to monitor a select number of applications. It just looks for the process ID. And these are applications, these are things that aren't viruses? These are things that aren't viruses, yeah. Or aren't considered potentially unwanted applications as well. So you wouldn't necessarily block them by default, but if you know that they have a potential for abuse in your company or they are being misused, you can say to people, sorry guys, no more Tor, no more Wireshark, no more whatever. Yeah. We recommend locking certain scripting languages like WScript and... HTA files. So you can still allow it for some users, the IT guys, but it stops. It means that if the crooks get onto my computer, yeah. they can't do what they want. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Right, that's about all from us this week. Duck, where can we find you on social media? At DuckBlog on Twitter and at PDucklin on Instagram. Matt? InfoSecBody on Instagram and Twitter. I noticed InfoSecBody's done a picture on Instagram. He hadn't for a while. Yeah, first picture in a while. Back yeah. on it. And uh, Mark? You can find me at Mark Stockley on Twitter and at Internet of Hens on Twitter as well. Mm. No at, foul play. I'm at Anna Brady on Twitter and we are, of course, at Naked Security on Twitter and Instagram. You can find us on Facebook by searching for Naked Security where we're often doing Facebook Live videos chatting about the latest, latest security topics. If you like the new podcast, please rate and review it so other people can find us. You can tweet us at Naked Security with suggestions or questions or you can email us at tips at And until next time, stay Stay secure. secure.